Well, okay, so my wife, if you know Melissa, uh, my wife, she does not have great vision. And I don't mean that in terms of like, you know, doesn't have a really, you know, good, you know, uh, you know, good mind to see the future and what's coming. I mean like literal, like her eyes, her vision, um, it's not great, right? Um, she was that kid who wore like the really thick glasses in second grade, you know, um, which by the way, I think is super cute, even though I didn't know her back then and would have been way too old to date her at that time. Um, <laughs> But recently we were, uh, man, we were on a hike together and she casually just threw out this comment. She said, I think I'm going blind. And I was like, um, I get it, but can we, you know, can we get through COVID before we address like another issue as important as you going blind? She couldn't figure out what the problem was for her blindness until she realized that she had been mixing up her right and her left contact lenses. I'll let you make a judgment on that, right? That's all I'm going to say about that. But as long as each of those lenses were not on the eye they were designed for, this woman was never going to get any clarity in the world the way I like her to have clarity in this world, right? And so our spiritual clarity is a lot like this, man. If we are not clear on what we just sang, if we're not clear on the gospel, our vision becomes obscured because the battlefield that we are on, because all of us are engaged in what is a spiritual battle, this battlefield of life, if we wanna call it that, man, it's foggy. The battlefields of life are foggy for you and they're foggy for me. And not only that, but our hearts are deceitful. Add a little layer on top of that, right? And idols, they look beautiful. And Jesus so easily becomes, like we just sang, a concept or he becomes an idea that we just reduce to either tradition or things like morality. So if we are constantly striving to keep the gospel clear, man, our spiritual battles are going to lead us to placing burdens on ourselves and then on others in our community and our church family that we just can't bear. And so what we're going to learn about this morning is that the true gospel, what it does is it frees us. It's a freeing gospel. It frees us from the burdens that we can't bear. And it does it through grace and faith in Jesus Christ, which is why it's important that we get the gospel right. And this is what we're going to be learning about today in Acts 15, when we see Paul and Barnabas and Peter coming together at this Jerusalem council, where they are going to just really actually engage in this debate about whether uh, Gentile Christians needed to engage in all of these uh, ceremonial Jewish laws in order to be saved. And so this is really an important chapter for us, an important chapter for the church as we dive in today. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to dive right into it. This is a long chapter. So you might want to just, you know, buckle in. You want to pour that third cup of coffee, grab that second donut uh, because we got some reading to do. All right. So Acts chapter 15, first one, you can follow along. It says this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there'd been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they'd finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And what this, and with this words of the prophets, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them 
uh, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what we're going to look at today is just a couple of points that we're going to unpack and break down. The first one is this, is that what is getting the gospel wrong lead us to? And then we're going to just follow that up with what getting the gospel right leads us to, because I think we're just really given some important lessons if we just take some time to unpack very briefly what is unfolding with these men in Acts chapter 15. So the first thing is getting the gospel wrong. What does it lead to? Two things. Number one, it leads to an unbearable yoke is what we just read, what we just learned. And two, it leads to putting God to the test. So the dispute was this, okay? Do Gentile believers need to be circumcised to be saved? That was the question. Now in our day, it might be something more like this, more along these lines, because we're you know, not just debating circumcision like all the time in our church councils these days, right? But in our day, it might be, man, do believers need to be baptized to be saved? Do believers need maybe to go to church to be saved? Is that the requirement for salvation? Or maybe it's, do believers need to be good moral people in order to be saved? Now, for some of you who have maybe even just a moderate understanding of the gospel, maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you went to good gospel preaching churches, you might answer just a resounding, well, no, Ronnie, heck no, to those questions. Now, of course, others of you may have said something along the lines of, well, yeah, I mean, that's, those things you just read are part of it right? Like, isn't this kind of a, a both and? Isn't it the gospel plus living a good moral life, being baptized, um, going to church, being part of a community of believers? It, it's both of those things, right? So what that leads us to is that we actually, like the church 2,000 years ago, we need clarity, and we need to continue to establish clarity in these things, just like Paul and Barnabas, who were called to Jerusalem to help bring clarity to the matter. So what we see here in Acts 15 really is the, like the world's first church council. And so if you're somebody who likes history, you can go back and you can look up some of these historic church councils that helped clarify what we would say are matters of gospel importance. And the reason why is so that they could identify heresies they could identify teaching that didn't align with scripture so that they could identify it, they could call it out and they could cut it out so that the church body remained pure before the Lord so that doctrine didn't get twisted. And all of a sudden we find ourselves going down a road that was never prescribed in scripture. So what happens here is that Peter, our boy Pete, right, who's part of leading the Jerusalem church, he stands up after all of this debate and he reasons with the council that's been gathered in Jerusalem. And he does it to bring clarity to the matter. And this is what he says in verse 10 and 11. He says, now therefore, he kind of sums up by saying, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And then he says this, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter uses this really great illustration of a yoke, which 
actually some of you might really be familiar with. Obviously knowing that a yoke was what farmers put on their oxen to pull a plow. And as a matter of fact, the rabbis of that time, they would actually use this illustration. So this was one of those things, like if you've heard me tell the same illustration like 20 times, which I do because I just don't have that many of them, this is something you would have heard the rabbis of that time uh, mention a lot. And they use the illustration of a yoke to describe kind of one's commitment to keeping God's law. And so what Peter does here, and who, by the way, was raised to keep the Jewish laws and knew the Jewish laws, he says very plainly, he says, guys, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear the weight of this kind of yoke. So recently I bought some um, railroad ties because we have this like fire pit and uh, our friends, the Watsons, they made a fire pit that looked like 86 times better than ours and they railroad tied it in. So I'm like, we gotta do that. We gotta keep up with the Joneses and the Watsons. So we, we frame in, we, we, we try to get some railroad ties to frame it in. Now normally I wouldn't need someone to help me load up railroad ties, but I thought um, my friend Zach Watson's arms needed a little toning. So I asked Zach if he would like to come help. No, seriously though, these things weighed like a ton. Like it was embarrassing. Like if I thought I was tough before this, which I didn't, I really, really realized that I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of, a lot to go in terms of like toning my own body, right? So what this does, this helps us imagine this yoke that Peter is describing to be something like carrying railroad ties with you everywhere that you go because you thought that this was how God would approve uh, of you, right? So imagine just carrying these crushingly heavy railroad ties with you everywhere, with your bare hands because you thought, this is what I need to do. So Jesus died on the cross, but what he wants me to do in addition to that is carry around these ties. So, right, so every time you leave the house, you gotta grab your tie, right? your railroad tie. You drag it into your car, you drag it from your car into work, you take it into the lunchroom, you bring it with you into bed every night, you haul it into the living room on Sundays for the live stream. Like all you guys are sitting there with your railroad ties and your donuts right now, right? Now, if that's what you think God wants you to do to keep him happy, the question then is what's that going to do to your affection for God? What's that going to do with the view that you have of God and who you think uh, he is? You're probably not gonna have a, a, lot of, a lot of affection for God. You're probably not gonna have a lot of happy thoughts for the kind of person that you think he is or what you think he requires from you or desires for you on his behalf, right? So this thing, circumcision, which we'll just keep right there, right? Had become an unbearable yoke for the Jewish people who thought that is what justified a person before God. So it was kind of this both and. Christ died, we believe that, but we believe it's also important to keep some of these ceremonial Jewish laws. Now look, circumcision, it wasn't a trivial thing. It wasn't a trivial thing for the Jewish people. It was a sign given to them, to the nation of Israel that sealed them as God's people. And of course, we would kind of look at baptism in some of the same ways, right, on this side of the cross. Baptism being this public proclamation to the church and to the world that we've, man, we've been delivered from our life of sin to new life in Christ. So it serves kind of like circumcision as this sign and this seal for the person who's been saved. But what we understand and what we believe from scripture is that baptism can't save you. Just like circumcision in itself couldn't save. In other words, water can't wash your heart clean. 
right? Just doesn't have that power anymore that like washing your car makes your engine run better, right? Like a nice looking car doesn't equal a nice running car. So the question that's being answered here is, did the Gentiles need to adopt these ceremonial laws of Moses in order to be saved? That was the question. Both Peter and James, they stand up and emphatically they say, no. And by the way, we shouldn't really miss, we shouldn't just glaze over this and miss like how wonderful this news is for us. When a person is saved by the gospel of grace, we call it the gospel of grace. It's not because they said a prayer. It's not because they were baptized or because they knew how to answer the questions that their youth pastor or parents asked them all those years ago, right? So just like your car engine doesn't get overhauled because you roll down the windows going through your self-serve car wash, your heart can only be washed clean by something internal happening, by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Peter, that's what James is trying to explain to their brothers of Jewish heritage who were getting a little confused, who were lacking clarity on the gospel. Paul in the, in the book of Romans chapter two, verse 28 says, for no one is a Jew who merely is one outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So he's just kind of flipping the whole thing. And he says, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, he says, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, he says, but from God. So our approval doesn't come from something outwardly we do to look up at God and say, see, we did it, we're good, right? It needs to come from God through the work of Jesus Christ, which produces an inward change an inward righteousness that's not our own, that only can come from Christ, that then God looks at and says, you're my son, you're my daughter. So one of the reasons why the gospel is so wonderful is because it's an act of grace. It's an act of unmerited favor from God. You don't have to carry those railroad ties around with you any longer. And the reason why is that so no one can boast of carrying something that only Jesus Christ had the ability to carry. Because here's the reality, is that anything that we can boast of eventually becomes a weight we have to carry that becomes a burden you have to bear, right? Paul tells us in Galatians 5.1, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom, freedom from those burdens. So then he says this, listen, he says, stand firm therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul's gonna be arguing about this later when he says, hey, pull back from this tendency you have to grab anything and say, it's Christ plus this, right? Peter says, why are you putting God to the test with this unbearable yoke? And so what that tells us is that when we get the gospel wrong, it leads to just that. It leads to something that's unbearable. It leads to an unbearable weight, which simultaneously, Peter says, it puts God to the test. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to put God to the test? Well, first off, it's something that Jesus rebuked Satan for doing when he was tempted, so it must be something serious, right? But really what it means is that we are tempting God by questioning his word and his motives to be true, right? 
So when we put burdens on God's people that God removed through Jesus on the cross, it's like we are saying, did God really say? Right? We're like echoing the words of the serpent back in Genesis 3 in the garden. We're taking into question, we're calling into question what God said to be true about what he did through the truth of the cross, right? We're saying in essence is that Jesus isn't enough. We're saying that the gospel really at the end of the day is Jesus plus something. That's what equals everything. Instead of Jesus plus nothing equaling everything. The problem is that Jesus plus something equals nothing for us. It's a gospel that lacks clarity because it's a gospel that has not been grounded in truth. So here's just some questions for us this morning as we're thinking through this. What traditions, if you look back in your life, as you reflect on this a little bit, what traditions have you attempted to sort of add a a gospel veneer to? Have you attempted to maybe, we would use the word gospelize, if I can use that word. What things do you subtly or overtly hold to that sort of extinguish grace, right? You think of an extinguisher putting out a fire. Well, sometimes these traditions we hold to, it's like taking an extinguisher and it's extinguishing grace. And then in effect, it's putting God to the test. Now, it could be a bunch of things that we would say aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. It could be a particular church tradition, like we talked about earlier, like baptism or membership or serving in ministry. So for some of you, it could be, well, Jesus plus I was baptized. Jesus plus I've been a member of a church for so many years. It could be Republican or conservative politics, right? So it could be Jesus plus GOP, right? So adding sort of these conservative values that I have with what Jesus did on the cross, that's what's going to make me acceptable and approved before God. Or it could be some kind of moral standard that you hold to, right? Or maybe even a good life, that you feel really good, that you've lived out well. So for you, it might be Jesus plus a certain kind of morality that you work really hard at maintaining and keeping. It could be charitable acts of kindness. Man, you're somebody who does love your neighbor. You care about your community. You care about people being served. And so for you, you think of Jesus plus the good acts of service you do as being what justifies you before God. But without the gospel, all of these things, all of these extra things lead to self-righteousness. They lead to self-righteousness over the righteousness that was purchased by Jesus when he died. So now listen, gospelizing good things puts God's goodness to the test. It's getting the gospel all wrong. And getting the gospel wrong, it leads to this unbearable yoke or weight, and it actually puts God to the test. And that is what Peter is pleading alongside of James with this Jerusalem council to grasp and to understand. And by the way, these are believers. And what this shows us is that sometimes believers can get confused. We can get mixed up. And that's why we need brothers and sisters around us to draw us back in, to bring us back to scripture, to say, hold on. What does God have to say about things that we so easily mix up and cloud within our thinking and then in our practice? So that's what getting the gospel wrong leads to in a nutshell through Acts 15. Well, what does getting the gospel right lead to? I think we see three things at a minimum here 
happening in Acts 15. The first one is this. Getting the gospel right leads to, number one, an openness to reason and correction. That's what we're seeing happening here with these men who debated and even disagreed at first about some things, is that there was an openness to reason and correction. So verse six tells us that there was much debate over this issue of circumcision, right? It's just calling it out, which by the way, is really about the gospel. And you know what? Debate within the church is not a bad thing when it's done with reasonableness. As Paul instructed the church, uh, the Philippian church in chapter four, verse five. In fact, James 3.17, the same James here, he reminds us that, he says this, the wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. And then he says, it's also full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. So here's what we're trying to say is that if the gospel is true, that Jesus removed the weight of self-righteousness we carry as a burden we can't bear, then we don't have to carry those things. We don't have to carry those railroad ties around anymore to appease God, which in turn opens us up to reason and correction. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, because our identity is not only renewed, but it's also secured in Jesus. When our theology, when my theology needs correcting, and it does, our pride won't take a hit that we can't handle, right? In fact, we'll be eager to know the truth because our desire will be for unity rather than simply being right. And what's so beautiful about what we see happening here is that the elders and apostles, they listened. Imagine that. We just hear them listening and being open to what was being said. They received the instruction from Peter. They trusted him. They listened to the testimony of Paul and Barnabas explaining to them how the Gentiles had received God's grace. They listened to them. They received the good words from James. And that just bears the question on us. Do we have the ability and the ears to listen to good instructions? Do we have an openness to reason and correction? Has the gospel penetrated our hearts in such a way that it opens up this valve, this blocked valve in us that wants to push back against everything and says, no, Lord, I want to know, I want to, I want to receive greater clarity about the things that I can so easily get foggy about. Why? Because this life is a battle because I have things in my path all the time that are steering me away from what I know to be gospel truth. So getting the gospel right leads to an openness to reason and correction. And we see just an amazing picture of it here, even in the midst of debate and discussion. Secondly, getting the gospel right leads to a unity and charity of spirit. A unity and charity of spirit. Now, the church is not a charitable organization in the legal sense, right? But it is in the spiritual and practical sense, which is why we can learn so much from the unifying and the loving ways in this chapter that the elders and the apostles encouraged the Gentiles here uh, in the early church. So here's what I mean by that. When you embrace the grace of God and when that word has become more than conceptual, more than just some meaningless phrase that's been pounded into your skull since Sunday school, what happens is it produces a growing and expanding unity in charity in you that flows out 
to one another. James says it right here in verse 19. He says that they should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So we have an open heartedness towards our brothers and sisters who may be a little bit different, who may have uh, different traditions as us, but we want that grace that's been given to us to expand over to them, to include them, to draw them in inclusively, because that is the thing that covers all, right? And so we have ways now that we can extend unity and charity, even towards brothers and sisters that might have some varying traditions. And so James, what he does is he quotes an Old Testament passage from the book of Amos, and he reminds them, he says, remember, Jesus was prophesied as the one who would come to rebuild and restore what he calls the tent of David, a tent which, by the way, would be inclusive of Gentiles who believed in the name of Jesus. So what we find here is that unity and charity, I mean, these are not, these are not just like catchphrases for the church, right? So that we feel like, man, we're doing good work, but they're foundational components of the gospel, right? Which means they're never optional, these aren't optional things for the church. The church doesn't just get to decide like what Sundays, what weeks, they wanna extend unity and charity towards one another, right? They're not like aftermarket parts that you buy to make your bike or your motorcycle or your iPad or I don't know, your vacuum cleaner better. Do we still do aftermarket parts for vacuum cleaners? I don't know, all right? But where unity and charity are absent, okay, here's what we do know, is that where unity and charity are absent and the gospel, it becomes conceptual for us. And unfortunately, Christians are famous for letting that happen. And in fact, one of the telltale signs of the gospel becoming conceptual is when selfish ambition moves to the front of the line over unity and charity, which is how churches split at the seams. Do you guys hear me with that? It's how churches split at the seams when unity and charity have been subbed out for selfish ambition. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7 gives us incredibly important words for us in this. Paul urges the church, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With what? With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And he says this, listen, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is what you're seeing happening right here in the church in Acts 15. And then Paul just goes on to say this. He says, there is one body uh, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That sounds very unified, doesn't it? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so that measure of grace that we've been given, it's all enough measure for us to lean into unity and charity, which is what happens when we are just insistent on getting the gospel right and consistently and continually providing clarity for what that means for us as a body. The third thing that getting the gospel right does is it gives us the ability to have healthy disagreement. So at the end of the chapter, it kind of takes this strange term where you have Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement about whether to take this guy named John Mark on their journey, right? 
So Barnabas is convinced, by the way, that John Mark, who was his cousin, he should come along. But Paul has a differing opinion. He believes that, that John needs some additional seasoning, most likely, and some maturity for the journey since he had withdrawn from them before in Pamphylia. So we had these two opposing opinions about what to do with John Mark as they embarked on their next missionary journey to go back to the churches and encourage them. So what do we make of this, right? Didn't we just learn how important it was for the church to be unified? And now we see Paul and Barnabas disagreeing over something as, I don't know, trivial as whether John Mark can tag along on the journey. Well, this actually teaches us, I think, just a really, really important lesson. When it comes to matters of first importance, which is the gospel and everything related to it, right? What we've been talking about up to this point, man, there can be no disagreement. There can be no disagreement, which is why when you become a member of Substance Church, for those of you who are members, you have to agree with our statement of faith, which are these 10 beliefs all related to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are biblical truths that are just non-negotiable for us. They're beliefs and doctrines that speak about things that don't allow for multiple interpretations or opinions, since they're articles of faith that have been held to be true by the church uh, for thousands of years now. But given that, having said that, there are matters of practice and tradition that we would call non-salvation issues or issues of secondary importance and that we can disagree on, but we don't have to divide over when it comes to our faith. Baptism would be one of those things. But that's what's happening here with Paul and Barnabas. They have a difference of opinion that they just couldn't come to agreement on. And it was even sharp enough, by the way, that they needed to go in different directions. Now, was this a gospel issue? Well, we would say no, it wasn't a gospel issue. Were they unkind? Were they uncharitable? Were they lacking unity in the faith? Did either of them disqualify themselves by their actions for ministry? We would say no, they just came to a differing perspective on a particular individual for this particular issue. In fact, Paul has favorable things to say about Barnabas if you go to 1 Corinthians 9, and he even talks favorably about John Mark in the book of Colossians chapter four. So what we see here is that getting the gospel right allows our hearts to grow for Jesus and for others in such a way that even when we have disagreements, even when we have to separate because of those disagreements, they can be done in a way that shows a particular kind of unity and charity for one another. And so that's important for us to remember because we wanna be open to reason. We wanna be open to correction. We wanna be a church that doesn't let pettinesses uh, cause disunity in our body, right? We want to have love that comes from the spirit for one another, accepting the fact that some people are coming from different traditions and may have different ways of going about things and doing things. And as long as those things stay in line with the gospel, we are allowed even to agree to disagree. And then when things even go beyond that, we are allowed to have what we would say are healthy disagreements as long as the gospel stays center and there is that unity and that charity that is guiding those disagreements so that things don't get to a place that becomes worldly and demonic and chaotic. And we've all seen that. We've all seen that in the past. So where does this leave us today as Substance Church? 
by the way, as a church that puts like gospel centered on everything, right? Got it on our backdrop, right? We got it on our website, t-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee. Are we making too many products? I don't know, right? We'll decide that. We'll talk about that later, right? Um, I mean, literally anything we can get our hands on, we put gospel centered. How do we continue in that? How do we continue to be gospel centered, to get the gospel right so that we are open to correction? so that we are eager for unity and we are able to have healthy disagreements with charity. Well, and this is gonna sound simple and I don't have my typical you know, three-point application thing here for you. And yeah, I breathe a sigh of relief right now, grab another donut, I don't know, that's up to you. I'm not gonna know what you do. But we keep the gospel central by keeping it clear. And we keep it clear by keeping it central. There is a thrilling reality to know that our faith, our unity, our charity, and our community find their crystallization in the gospel. Do you hear what I'm saying with that? In Christ, we find a commonality that is stronger than our individualities while never losing the uniqueness of how God has made each of us in his image. This doesn't mean that everything becomes simple or black and white and we attempt to avoid the complexities that come with our emotions and our life stories and our family of origins and all of these matters that contribute to the life we live in a fallen world. What it means is that there is a clarity of truth, number one, and a quality of hope that is available for the church that is striving to keep the gospel clear and to get the gospel right. There is a clarity of truth when you run to the person and work of Jesus Christ and you pursue honest and gracious engagement with your brothers and sisters when conflicts or debates arise, right? What we're presented with is what we see here in Acts 15, that the spirit is going to work in such a way that truth is going to crystallize even in the just throes of rigorous debate. How is that even possible? Because I'm telling you, you ain't seeing it out there. You're not seeing it on social media unless you're on some platform that like I am not familiar with, right? But there is a clarity of truth when we run to Jesus and we engage with our church family with unity and charity. There's also a quality of hope that is available when we pursue Jesus. Because you know what? You finally have someone who doesn't disappoint. And we all face disappointment. We all are wrestling with varying degrees of disappointment. But our disappointment doesn't stem from Jesus. It stems from those objects that we've tried to make our own personal Jesus, as that old pop song goes from 30 years ago, right? But when Jesus becomes the one thing that you set your hope on, And something changes, something begins to grow, something begins to mature, something begins to marinate inside of you. It's kind of like going from a a card table to like an oak table to uphold you and all of your stuff. And those wobbly card tables, we've all had those. You put something heavy on it, you're like, that's not gonna last very long. And it doesn't, it collapses. But we have a quality of hope when we put everything we have on the shoulders and at the foot of Jesus in that it's going to be upheld and there's nothing we can't throw. 
There's nothing we can't throw at the foot of the cross. The cross is able to bear what we can't bear. That's the beauty of it. That's the, that's the thinking that needs to be clear in our minds and in our heads as a church that is going to have the tendency, like all churches, to argue and to bicker about the wrong things. But the gospel is a gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace is always our most clear and our most hopeful thing. Why? Because Jesus is always our most clear and hopeful person. And so we need something that has clarity and hope on the battlefield that we are on every day. And when it gets foggy, we know that we have something sustaining us that will create clarity, that will provide unity and charity until we see Jesus face to face. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth and the hope that is provided for us through the life of Jesus. We thank you that it's not merely conceptual, but it's found in the person and the face of your son who is walking with us, who is near to us right now as we pray, whose presence doesn't flee from us. So God, I pray that these truths would be embedded more deeply in our hearts than they were an hour ago. God, that the hope that we have, that we put and we place on other things that are so card table-like and those weights that we carry around that are the equivalent of railroad ties and that they exhaust us, God, that you would just deliver us, alleviate that weight that we have so wrongly continued to carry because of our misunderstanding of what it is that you did at the cross. So God, we pray once again that these truths would be refreshed and renewed. And if this is the first time we are coming into contact with those truths, God, that you would open up our hearts to receive them and understand them and commit our lives to them. We thank you all of this in the name of Christ. And together we said, amen. <laughs>